And you're listening to 87.6 FM, Apollo Bay Radio, The Wellness Couch with Katarina and Brett Morrison. Welcome back, Brett. Hi, how are you going? Today. So joining us tonight as we talk with our world-renowned expert on homeoprophylaxis about strengthening our immune system and learning from the significant scientific international evidence on how to effectively treat and prevent flus. Welcome. He needs no introduction. Dr. Isaac Golden, how are you going? Lovely to chat with both of you, Katarina and Brett, and uh, and your audience. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Isaac. Um, welcome. To, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And uh, it's a it's a very comfortable and relaxed way to do it. I didn't have to get dressed up at all. <laughs> You've so, been quite popular this week, haven't you? Don't tell me other week. But neither did I. Um, <laughs> just come into the studio. No one can see us. It's all good. Good. So uh, sorry. You go on. You go. Oh look! Just uh, look. I know we're going to get into some really, really interesting information as we as we go through the show. But look, I'd just like to get a bit of background about you as a person, so that the audience can get a bit of an understanding about your journey from uh, where you started from and how you've got into this um, amazing understanding of of immunizations. And I guess you know it's quite an interesting path because I, I see in your in your CV and your bio there that you've actually got an economics degree and from there yeah. you've you've gone into this real world of health and, and medicine. So could you just take us a little bit through that path for us? Okay. So look, um, yes, you're right. I started with an economics degree and I ran a tax practice for a friend of mine in Canberra, Queen, for three years uh, um, in the late 70s, early 80s. And... Um, but I've always been interested in natural health, you know, simple things like even foot massages. I remember when I was in my <laughs> 20s, um, those sort of things were very, um, very pleasant and, and felt healthy. And I've never been a fanatic with diet. Uh, in fact, I'm embarrassed very often by my patients <laughs> who have a much better diet than I do. But I've always been reasonably careful with it. And certainly in the last, 30 or 40 years, um, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably careful in the terms of uh, avoiding really highly processed food as much as possible. But every now and again, you know, you're going to go out somewhere and you're going to have something which in theory is not all that good for you, but that's life, you know, and I think that um, it can be a problem worrying too much about being perfect in everything. Uh, that can put so much strain on a person that can be worse than the occasional hamburger, not that I have a hamburgers, but, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. But in terms of my journey, um, I used to vaccinate my children. Um, I was fairly orthodox in that sense and followed the orthodox health advice until one of them was vaccine injured in the late 70s. And I then stopped vaccinating when I realised what had happened and tried to get information. And there was very, very little um, and there was a wonderful uh, old American professor, Robert Mendelssohn, who at that time was about the only person trying to give parents accurate and reliable information about uh, some of the facts behind why people would be affected, uh, because I never thought about vaccines being anything other than safe and effective, because that's what we were told by uh, medical professionals. Anyway... Um, I, one thing led to another. I won't go into the full thing. There isn't time and it's not that interesting. But I made a decision uh, in the early 80s to change my uh, career path 
and uh, I had an opportunity to do some studying. I was living um, in the bush up in uh, a place in Queensland, then moved down to Armadale, outside of Armadale in New South Wales, um, doing uh, finance work for a construction company, of all things. And um, But I had time to actually start studying, so I did that. And um, in 1984, um, I completed a number of, you know, the what I'd regard as minor qualifications, but enough to get me started in things like flower essences and herbs and, you know, basic nutrition. Yeah. I came to Melbourne in uh, or Victoria in 85, and uh, by then someone had mentioned homeopathy to me, and uh, <laughs> I had a look at it and fell in love straight away. And then in 85, I was reading uh, the what's called... Hunneman's Lesser Writings. Dr. Hunneman, a German physician, uh, was the person who founded homeopathy. And Lesser Writings are books that uh, acad- that people like him will put together with their collection of essays and things like that, which don't necessarily publish as a book on their own right, uh, but are collected together. And I was reading his Lesser Writings, and he had this essay, The Cure and Prevention of Scarlet Fever. Mm. which uh, he published in 1801, but it talked about his use of the remedy Belladonna homeopathically, mm. potentized, to both treat and prevent scarlet fever in Germany uh, in 1798. And that was a, a turning point in my life, really, because I realized that I'd not been taught about any of this stuff in my courses, but it was clear, Hunneman used homeopathy not only to treat diseases but also to prevent. And so I made a decision then to develop a program uh, where parents who were concerned about the potential toxicity of vaccines could actually get a a homeopathic option. And my first program I developed in 1985. I started researching straight away, collecting data in 1986. Um, In 2000. To, uh, 2000 until 2004, I did a doctorate at Swinburne University. The, the main arm of it was analysing the data from 1986 to 2002 to try and get an indication of the both the safety and the effectiveness of the uh, homeopathic immunisation option. Now, I guess the one thing that I have brought to the table, because, I mean, homeopaths have been using homeopathic immunisation, as I said, since 1798 when Hunneman started and mm. not soon, not long after that, some of the great masters of homeopathy. Yes. And people using... miss that, don't they, Isaac? Like people, oh, absolutely. People don't realise that homeopathy's been around for hundreds of years and it's actually very effective and you know that ef- efficacy has got history and, and proof and evidence over hu- literally hundreds of years. Absolutely. That's right, Brett. And um, you know, some of the great masters over the history up to the current day have used homeopathic immunisation. So that had all been used basically in epidemic situations. And I think what I brought to the table was the first lot of data showing the safety and effectiveness of the method in what we call endemic situations. Mm-hmm. In other mm-hmm. words, something like whooping cough in Australia, which is not in epidemic proportions, but it's around all the time. And we call that endemic. And so uh, the single figure uh, for effectiveness I had from my long-term study, 15-year study, was 90.4%. But mm. more importantly, the 
uh, 95% confidence limits were something like 87.3 and 93.4, I think. That's been a while now. But they were very close around the mean. And that's terribly important because yes. you can have uh, an average effectiveness of 90%, but if the confidence limits range from, say, 50% to mm-hmm. 99%, yeah. it means it's not all that rigorous. It's not all that dependable. But when those figures are very tight around the mean, uh, that gives a lot of you know, encouragement as to the effectiveness of the method. And then in 2019, skipping forward a long way, <laughs> I actually published a number of articles, one in, in an Australian journal, one in an American journal, and then an Indian journal took up a summary, uh, where I looked at the use of homeoprophylaxis in three countries, mainly by government agencies, in over 250 million doses. Wow. Now, that's a lot of that's data. That's a lot. That is a lot of data. That's a lot of and, research. You know, we, yeah. <laughs> Um, and it was a, a challenging uh, study because the data and the interventions on which the data was drawn uh, were not all homogeneous. They weren't all the same. Mm. So I also then worked on a, a way of trying to develop a, an average, and the average over all of that, uh, those countries, over all of the years of the studies and over all of the different diseases came in between 85 and 90%, so very close to what my figures were. And that's the thing with the homeopathic option. It's very consistent, whatever the disease. And so if we're talking about something like a COVID, for example, once again, we can expect there's no reason why it wouldn't be similarly consistent because COVID is just a flu, basically. It's a very contagious flu, particularly the Delta variant. But it's basically a flu, and uh, uh, and that's why you know we can be confident that as with other flus, as with pneumococcal disease, etc., uh, etc., et the remedies will have a, a similar level of effectiveness. Now that's a very high level of effectiveness compared to allopathic methods. Yes, well, I mean, as I said, the, the measles and a few others are probably around the ninety percent mark for sure, but uh, the the interesting thing is mm. that, as I said, there's a lot of variance. So whooping cough these days is probably around that 65% mark. It used to be 85 But because the strain is changing and the vaccine isn't, it means that lock and key upon which vaccination traditionally relies is less uh, tight. Um, yeah. And the antibodies produced by the vaccine are not a perfect match for the antigen that's now circulating in the community. Homeopathic immunisation is not a vaccine and people who talk about homeopathic vaccination are wrong. It's the wrong use of terms. It's not a vaccine. It works on a different part of the immune system. Now, unfortunately, because the pharmaceutical drug cartels control the major health systems around the world, when we talk about immunity in this country, most people mm-hmm. think about antibodies. But immunity, the immune system's a lot more complex than just yeah. antigens and antibodies. Yeah. In fact, the antibody-antigen response is the last line of defense in the immune system against uh, infectious diseases. Before then, there's a whole range of naturally built-up immune mechanisms in the respiratory tract where we breathe something in, 
or in the gastrointestinal tract when we ingest something. And prior to that still is the energetic immune system because we're more than just a physical body. Mm -hmm. We've got an emotional body, an intellectual body, if you like. We've got these energy bodies that can't be measured in laboratory. And that's the level on which homeopathic immunization works. Yeah, wow. So there's so much more to it. And I guess a lot of people, actually majority of people just wouldn't understand that. And I think that's where it sort of falls down a little bit because they're just not aware of the options that they're out there, but also the effectiveness of and the different levels that homeopathics work on. No, that's that's totally correct. And that's, to me, the real shame uh, regarding the, um, the COVID response, that we really, right from the word go, have not been allowed in this country and in many other developed countries to actually know about and use all of the options to both prevent and treat COVID, which have been used around the world, not just by, you know, homeopaths and naturopaths and people like that, mm-hmm. but by integrative medicine doctors, doctors who have traditional uh, medical degrees, but who also use natural medicines. And um, I was very fortunate early in the uh, outbreak around, I think it was uh, April or May last year, to be involved in what they call a town hall meeting. And there were a couple of other integrative medicine doctors there and and I was talking about the homeopathic option. But one of the doctors, uh, a Dr. Brownstein, is well known Mm -hmm. by many people in Australia. And he and his colleague were treating right at the start of the outbreak in America. Um, Their their clinic, basically, most of the patients there, what, what would be regarded as high risk, elderly people with a lot yeah. of comorbidities. And he was talking about, you know, cars lining up in their car park um, because they couldn't get people inside. And they were going out giving injections of uh, vitamin C. Wow. Or, yeah, you know, it. and other things like that. Yeah. <laughs> and people pulling down their trousers, exposing their bottoms in the car park. <laughs> wow. That's quite a, a vivid picture, actually. That, but, that is. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. They using, yeah. They were using a lot more than that. And, you know... The incidence that he had of death was virtually zero, and the incidence of admission to ICUs and hospitals so was these, virtually zero. So these were um, people that were infected. They weren't just um, preventative strategies, were they? They yeah. were early yeah. treatment. Yeah, early people with COVID. Yeah, so early treatment intervention per- protocols that enable a COVID-infected person, obviously, not to be hospitalised, but treated with simple and readily available drugs. Yeah. That's what we need, you know, to well, to avoid the hospitalisation system and overcrowding system that they're so concerned about. Yeah, well, that the the only reason why there's a risk of hospitals being overcrowded is because we are not allowed in this country to know about and use uh, openly and freely for all patients who need it, uh, these uh, these early treatments, which are incredibly successful. And the, the data is there. Yeah, so the they're quite yeah, there. they're quite accessible too and they're a lot cheaper, aren't they? Which means, you know, lots of countries have access, accessibility to it as well because of the cheapness and the effectiveness. Look... Let's talk about ivermectin for a moment. Now, in Victoria, our esteemed um, chief health officer or whatever his title is, uh, rubbished it on the news uh, broadcast I saw a little while ago. But you think about India. Now, a couple of months ago, we were seeing the most horrific scenes on our TVs from India. 
you know, few mass funeral pyres, dead bodies lying in the street, hospital wards hopelessly overcrowded. If you look at the data for COVID from India, you'll see around the middle of May, or slightly earlier than that, the peak that was growing and growing and growing, all of a sudden, went the other direction. And India, we don't hear about India anymore because COVID is controlled there. And the difference was that in early May, about six or seven of the states that were badly affected in India decided to use ivermectin Mm. on their population. Can you talk now, about that? Because a lot of people talk about it's a horse medication, like a worming medication. We're not talking about what you actually get from the pet shop. Look, um, people are getting it from all sorts of places. But what I would say is that I would use quercetin instead yeah, of ivermectin. Yeah. Uh-huh. The reason why ivermectin works is because it's what's called a zinc ionifer. Mm. Now, zinc is really important in dealing with COVID because if zinc gets into the... COVID cells, it destroys them. But it's very difficult for zinc to get in, and therefore it needs a zinc ionifer to actually interesting, help yeah. it get into the COVID cells. And that's what uh, quercetin does, it's what ivermectin does, it's what hydrochloroquine does. So uh, the nice thing about the quercetin, as long as it's prescribed and taken appropriately, it doesn't have the adverse effects. And, and ivermectin does have adverse effects. They're not nearly as serious as the disease it's preventing or treating but there is a level of toxicity it's a drug Mm, mm -hmm. and and that's what i'm saying that that in a situation like india the side effects from the drug would have paled into insignificance compared to the good it did in wiping out those dreadful scenes that we saw um and uh in australia you can probably get and i don't know i'm not a integrative medicine doctor, but uh, you can probably get purified forms of ivermectin um, rather than going to the uh, the local vet. But uh, uh, still, I'd be using, if you can get it, the quercetin because, of course, it's yes, become hugely sure. popular. Yeah. yeah, I do believe it is a viable medically because um, I listened to a Joe Rogan podcast where he said he actually got treated by his normal doctor. Not in and Australia. It was, it was prescribed, mm. so... It's definitely available around the world in some places, and I think I believe he said also Japan was also using it as well. So it's interesting that other countries are actually embracing it and using it. Yeah, look, you can access it in Australia legally um, as part of a research project. Now, isn't that mm-hmm. you know quite bizarre? <laughs> but um, yeah. there are, I believe, and I don't know of any, so no need for the TGA to ring me up and ask. <laughs> uh, there are doctors who are prescribing. Uh, ivermectin, uh, and they may well be doing it as part of a research project. Um, So it is available and and people can get it. But, you know, quercetin is legally available and uh, uh, it's a a very powerful zinc ionifer as well. So, I mean, we talk... Sorry, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, the whole point is that things like this, they've been available from February last year. And, you know, we're not allowed in Australia really, to talk about it. I mean, we can, on this this show, we can talk about it. But, you know, if I got up and said, uh, come and see me, I've got preventions or cures no. for COVID, yeah. Yeah, I could be heavily fined or jailed. Mm. I mean, yeah. the TGA and their regulations can jail people. 
for talking about facts that have uh, data, evidence behind them. It's, it's wrong, you know, and that's been the tragedy in our country here, as well as many countries overseas, that right from the start, the, the response to COVID has been controlled by the pharmaceutical drug cartels and the people who are basically their proxies in charge of the health of Australians. And it was such a, so nice to hear the new Premier of New South Wales a, few, a week ago, probably, um, one of his first press conferences, they were talking about the response and a journalist piped in, well, where's the Chief of Medical Officer? And he said, he doesn't need to be here. This is not just a, a medical uh, issue. This mm-hmm. is a, an economic issue. Mm-hmm. You know, this has to do with our whole community. What a relief to hear a politician actually say that and take a bit of responsibility rather than, you know, passing the buck to yeah. people who are inappropriate to lead the response that we've had in this country. And this is why Melbourne has now holds the um, the record as the most lockdown city in the world. It's going to be interesting to see because, I'm, I mean, many of those draconian measures, um, the trauma that it's created via lockdowns has led to, like, increased loneliness, disconnection, loss of social cohesion. You've got domestic violence, job loss, and obviously so much mental illness that we're going to see over the next few years. And suicide. Well, that's yeah. I mean, that's what I meant. Yeah, mental yeah. illness. I, yeah. I live up um, in the Macedon Ranges, and you know, tragically, in, we've had in very recent weeks five suicides oh, no. in either no. late teens or early, oh, you, you know, just yeah. over teens. It's, it's tragic. It's oh, a no. tragedy. It is an absolute. And these are the figures that they should be talking about on the news, so that everything about COVID is put into perspective. So if people want to. Uh, do all these draconian measures, then they can also take responsibility for the consequences. So in Victoria, the Premier is proud of saying we're going to end lockdowns, but we're going to start locking out people. So we're not going to lock people down. We're going to lock people out. So anyone who doesn't go along with his approach is going to be locked out of society. Well, imagine the psychological damage that is going to do to so many people. As, apart from losing jobs and livelihoods, et cetera, et cetera. It's, um, it's a great tragedy, and it was all avoidable. That's the thing that upsets me the most. Yeah. Yeah, look, it is quite sad. And, like, I know people keep saying that, you know, everyone has a choice, but when you have your arm tied behind your back and a gun pointed at your head, that, that choice isn't really a choice. No. Um, when people are locked out of society, locked out of having a job, locked out from being able to provide for food, provide a house, you know, pay their mortgage or rent, the choice doesn't really feel like a choice anymore. Yeah, it's not an informed choice. And I mean, the um, the protocols from the Nuremberg trials are meant to be take precedence in health. In other words, everyone should be able to make an informed choice about any medical intervention, particularly experimental medical interventions, which is what these vaccines are. And that's, informed choice has not been allowed and it's um, a great discredit to the the local uh, health community if you like particularly the people leading it that that informed choice has been removed from Australians and um, I think history is going to paint a lot of people in very poor light when the history yeah. of this uh, COVID business is written and it will be you know yeah. 
10, 20, 30 more years' time. And a big It'll part of that too, I think, Isaac, isn't it, is that I think in the past Australia has had a very democratic society. We've been able to debate the pros and cons in, in a public forum in a respectful way. Mm. And one of the things that I've seen definitely missing in this whole discussion, actually it's not really a discussion, it's sort of like people talking at us, is that the, the, the open debate for both sides has not been allowed. It's, hey, this is the way it is. And if you have an opposing view, well, then they really do want to lock you up. Yeah, it's very sad, Brett. And I was very sad to hear that most universities now are now yeah. mandating yeah. Uh, vaccinations for students. Um, and I think that's so inappropriate because, I mean, in my day, um, we were protesting about the, uh, yeah. the Vietnam War, for example. And even though that was an issue which caused great friction within the community, it didn't cause the divisions which we're seeing now. It didn't cause the immense stress we're seeing now, uh, even though it was a very serious time uh, in Australia's history. But there was the freedom to do that, you know, to talk and have discussions and open debate. And the media is totally culpable in this. Uh, they've become mouthpieces mm. for the pharmaceutical drug cartels and, and what's been happening. And, you know, we've got allegedly some very, very good investigative reporters in Australia, and they'll track down, you know, politicians uh, uh, getting false members and they'll track down politicians um, uh, having, you know, inappropriate liaisons in Parliament yeah. House and things like that. But I've never heard uh, a decent trackdown of what's happening to our health system. And, you know, they they will also be held accountable in years to come. Yeah, it's amazing, Isaac, because, um, you know, certainly we've got many Nobel Prize recipients, doctors and scientists that are actually presenting a different angle. So, you know, really we should be having that uh, discussion about what's going on. Yeah, there is, because I know there's doctors like yourself. We've had on the show Professor um, Brighthope. Brighthope as well, who's a, a yeah. medically, like you said, a traditionally medically trained He was doctor. talking about the CD um, um, yeah, and, protocol, vitamin yep. D. Yep. So having vitamin yeah. C, zinc, vitamin D. And I have to say, actually, since we had him on the show, like I've actually been following that protocol. I have not even had a, like a sniffly nose through... Well, when did we have him on? Early last year, so maybe... Oh, 2020, I think at the start of the... You know, um, through yeah, a couple of a couple of very cold, wet winters down here, and I'm yeah. outside all the time, so um, I don't think I've been in... Probably had better health the whole time during that. Um, so, yeah. so we've got simple things that are available to us, but you know, if you actually dare to speak out about them, people... So we look at you. But like they are protocols. The other way. They are protocols that you can take alongside yep. the the vaccination as well. So yep. you know, because I mean, obviously we're seeing yeah we're seeing breakthroughs at the moment too. But it's stimulating for the immune system, so it, it works in conjunction with as well. If if that's where the path you want to navigate. Yeah, it was, you know, um, I do little videos for the. Uh, I, I don't use social media myself, but I do little videos for the Help Australia Party Facebook page every now and again. And a few months ago, I came across this really interesting uh, bit of research from America, from some doctors in America who have been involved in treating COVID. And uh, basically, that what they did, they used a protocol of medicines that were available over the counter, vitamins, minerals, and, and other things, uh, to, to treat uh, most of their patients. And they published their results. And I'll tell you what, they had fantastic results 
And these were stuff that you could go down to even chemist warehouse or somewhere like that. You know, yeah. it isn't particularly. Um, it's not like your local health food store, where health is the number one issue rather than just selling stuff. Uh, but you know, you could get things like vitamin D with K two, mm. vitamin C with zinc. Uh, yeah. Even some of the products had quercetin in them. I mean, for me, if you only took three things nutritionally for COVID, they'd be the three. But these are things we'd normally take for flus anyway, Isaac, isn't yeah, it? You know, even just yeah. normal flus and, and immune stimulation, this would be the protocols that we'd actually prescribe to patients. Well, COVID is a flu. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what it is. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a different way of approach because I know from the, I guess, the natural medicine side, the they tend to look at the body in, in systems and how it works as systems and I guess the more traditional medicine takes to look at the disease individually and, and I know, you know, vaccines have probably been very effective over the years and like, you know, they have removed many diseases and, you know, if you don't want to get malaria, you probably take some malaria tablets before you go into the tropics and that type of thing. Um, but when you look at... Or from take a, the homeopathic preventative from malaria, you could do that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, which, which would be probably a lot healthier. Um, absolutely. You know, but when you talk about looking at a system, like you see COVID as a virus and just like another virus and you can treat the body for viruses and prep the body for viruses. Um, and so not necessarily treating that individual disease, but you're preparing the body to combat a virus. Yeah, well, see, what you're talking about, Brett, are two different approaches, and they're both yeah. appropriate, and they're both complementary. So, in other words, you've got one approach, which is just to make the person as healthy as possible, um, and particularly, uh, you know, taking into account that we're dealing with a virus or a bacteria, in this case, a virus, or you've got a disease-specific approach, and this is where the homeopathic immunisation comes in, because nice. like vaccination... It's a disease specific rather than trying to make the person as a whole as healthy as possible. Uh, it's targeting actual specific uh, antigens. And so, um, you know, I find with, uh, with the childhood immunization, like mm -hmm. against things like whooping cough and um, pneumococcal disease, Haemophilus influenzae, that sort of thing, uh, that by targeting individual diseases, you get a, a higher level of protection. Now, if you've only been following uh, get healthy as, as general in po as possible, if you get the disease, you'll recover much better than you would have otherwise, but it doesn't give you as high a level of protection as targeting the specific disease with disease-specific preventatives. And so, um, you know, the, around the world, homeopaths have been, and, and we're talking about tens of thousands of homeopathic doctors around the world, have not only been using stuff to prevent, but also to treat uh, COVID as well. And, um, you know, they've been uh, publishing their, their results in uh, journals around the world, and they're getting some very, very good results. But this is where India came in, you see, because when you think about, say, a city like Delhi, um, the the Greater Delhi area has almost the population of Australia. Oh, wow. uh, they have <laughs> tremendous wealth, but also tremendous poverty. Yeah. And these were people who had no decent nutrition. Yeah, They had, you know, no chance for social distancing. They had no good sanitation. 
You know, I've just, seen yeah. I've been to Delhi in four times, um, and you know, it's it's very sad to see these immense areas of total poverty. And India was always a country where a disaster potentially was waiting to happen, and it started mm. to happen. And this is where coming in with something that we're not allowed to openly use in Australia has saved so many lives and so much suffering. Um, you know, th- to me, it's what works safely and effectively relative to the seriousness of the disease. And that varies depending whether a person's a well-fed Aussie with lo- good nutrition, true, true, yeah. you know, plenty of sanitation, uh, living in a clean environment or... Uh, a person living in an Indian slum who's, you know, struggling to get food on the table where the sanitation isn't possible and et cetera, et cetera. It, it, we've got to be realistic when we look at these different situations sure. um, and and accept what the evidence shows us. And it shows us we could have done so much better. Yeah, all those predisposing factors like you talk about, you know, um, are correlated to the, the COVID outcomes, aren't they? Whether, you know, you get it mildly or severely as well. I mean, yep. ev- evidence is starting to emerge um, from overseas that, that that's actually the case. Well, the interesting evidence really from overseas now is about the vaccine. Because when they first were released, uh, you know, Pfizer and uh, Moderna and AstraZeneca, particularly Pfizer and Moderna, they were claimed to be 95% effective against the disease. Then, after a while, that was changed. Oh, well, they're 95% effective for keeping you out of ICU, for getting a really serious case. You still can get the disease and you can still pass it on to other people. Uh, Now, if you look at figures from America, they're talking about 60 and 70%. And in Israel, one of the most vaccinated developed countries on the planet, the uh, Israeli health minister uh, some weeks ago came out and said she thought Pfizer was only about 40% effective. And that's the reason why they're now mandating over there Boosters, yeah. the third dose mm. of the vaccine. And I, it's interesting that the talk about that now has changed in the media. So it wasn't all that long ago where in the media you only hit ever... Uh, heard the talking heads talking about two doses, double vaxxed. You know, when we're double vaxxed, everything's fine. Now they're starting to change the language. Oh, and now we can give people who are at high risk, we can give them their third dose. And I heard the most outrageous statement by Australia's Chief Health Officer the other day who came out and said, oh, and look, you know, we've got every reason to believe that when people have their third dose, they could be immune for life. Well, you know, what utter nonsense. Mm. There is no evidence at all about that. And the evidence that we have suggests that, no, they're not going to be immune for life. They're going to need a fourth dose and a fifth dose. But is you that know, possible for any vaccination? Because, like, I don't believe any vaccination gives you 100% immunity, does it? Well, it varies, uh, doesn't it? Doesn't it vary nothing, according to people too, nothing. the people's microbiome and, you know, nutrient yeah. deficiencies and, you know, where they're located in the world as well. I mean, that all plays a part. Obviously, you know, what they're eating, like the immune system comes under attack if there's high di- um, sugar in the diet, artificial sweetness, processed foods. You know, we all know the immune system is actually, um, you know, uh, comes down when, when those are into effect. Yep. Um, I mean, nothing on the planet will ever guarantee you immunity 
the most certain form of immunity is to get the disease once. Yeah. Some people still get whooping cough twice. Some people still get measles twice. But the figures have shown already in the orthodox medical journals that people who have had a COVID infection have six to 12 times greater level of immunity than people who are vaccinated. So natural immunity is without a doubt the most certain and long-lasting form of immunity. It's better than homeopathic immunity, of course, so there's um, because some... it's not 100% either. 90% is not 100%. Yeah, that's true. It's not 99%. So, you know, um, if a person can get the disease safely and be well-treated so there's no long-lasting uh, adverse events from it, then in a way that's the best way to immunise and get herd immunity. Now, there's a big... You've probably heard about what the United Nations did a little while ago. Um, sorry, the World Health Organisation did mm -hmm. a little while ago. They changed the definition of herd immunity. Oh, so, I could not uh, believe that. <laughs> you what, sorry? I could not believe that, that they had yeah. the authority to actually do that after hundreds of years. Well, apparently now, and I haven't had a time yet, I'm just so busy to... Uh, check it out, but apparently now they've kind of reverted back to the original um, definition, but have said, well, because in case your listeners don't know, originally the definition was, if you like, communal protection derived from people getting the disease and mm -hmm. vaccination. And then they basically changed it a little while ago to say, well, herd immunity is really what's derived from vaccination. Yeah. Well, we know who loved them saying that, don't we? The people make the money from the vaccine. Well, apparently, I've heard say, without being able to confirm it, that they've very, very recently reverted kind of back to the original definition, but saying, but we think it's much better to get your immunity from vaccines uh, so that you don't risk having the disease. But, I mean, to try and deny the fact that natural immunity uh, it plays a massive part in all of this, uh, is it's just outrageous really dr isaac does um miasms come into this play into this at all <laughs> uh well i'm sure it does katarina <laughs> you're dropping some good homeopathic words there i just thought do you so, want to explain to the audience what it means you're you're the um, homeoprophylaxis expert yeah <laughs> basically uh when dr hunneman the founder of homeopathy um he was finding early on in his homeopathic uh, studies and his homeopathic career, that the remedies were proving to be very effective in treating symptoms that the person was presenting with. But for some people, yeah. <laughs> they'd be well for a while and the symptoms would come back or other similar symptoms would come back. And then he spent, I think, 12 years of his life intensely studying old medical records he was fluent in seven languages, you know, Greek, Roman, or, as well as German, English, etc. Yeah. Um, incredible guy. So he had access to all those records. And he came out at the end of that with a, a concept of what he called miasms. In other words, we are born with and or we acquire faults or flaws in our overall or total system which lead to particular patterns of disease. And that's how we recognise miasms in individual patients, by looking at their patterns of disease over their life and sometimes even the pattern of disease in their 
uh, parents uh, because miasms can be passed down definitely, mm-hmm. but they also can be acquired. Um, and uh, he then started looking for remedies that were what he called anti-miasmic. Now, in terms of an infectious disease like a flu, this includes COVID, but any infectious disease, people of any miasm can acquire that. Mm-hmm. But the miasm that's fundamentally there may well determine not only the severity of their infection, mm-hmm. depending on mm-hmm. how active the miasm is, but the type of uh, response. So, for example, we find that you might have three or four people living in the one home, parents and a couple of children. They all get the disease and they all need different remedies. Is this why we're seeing all um, under-functioning and hyper-functioning in um, some COVID patients, like of the immune system? Yes, absolutely. You can put it down to miasms. To be honest with you, Katarina, I hadn't thought about it uh, in you know so much in terms of miasms, but certainly if you look at it from that point of view, because the different miasms manifest differently. Yeah. So you've but got, it's interesting yeah. that even in the same family group where you would mm-hmm. expect a high level of, of similarity in terms of inheritance of the miasms, the remedies needed uh, can be different. But, yeah. of course, the fact is that each miasm doesn't rely on one individual remedy. There can be dozens of remedies that are anti-miasmic, and that's why within that group you can find um, the, uh, uh, the evidence there. I've, it's interesting, you know, I've found in what I've seen so far that COVID in Australia, the, the dominant individual remedy, what they call a genus epidemicus yeah. remedy or the, the remedy for the, uh, the outbreak or the disease is the remedy bryonia. Now, in India, where they first looked at um, over there, they came up with arsenicum album and Mr. Mm. Modi, the Prime Minister yeah. of India, took that. Yeah. Uh, but they've also gone through a number of phases as well. But there's a lot of bryonia uh, in this current um, outbreak. And, uh, but other remedies, you know, pulsatilla uh, comes up, phosphorus, uh, arsenicum, of course, comes up. Some people have seen camphor, antimonium tartaricum and yeah, mercury yeah. in the later stages. Wow. So all of those remedies... We have a great advantage um, because the the treatments undertaken by homeopathic doctors in other countries have been published. And so uh, there's probably a dozen different remedies which you need to be familiar with in order to treat COVID uh, if people were allowed to treat COVID officially in Australia. Yeah, individualised treatment, which it should be, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But with all epidemics, if you look at the old masters, they all said that there will be in an epidemic one and maybe up to three or four remedies, which are most of the time indicated. Uh, and that's the characteristic or the genus of the epidemic. So that's all epidemics, regardless of the type of infection. Basically, yes. Yeah, wow. Okay, interesting. But you see, an epidemic of an acute disease is built on chronic miasms, but it's not a chronic miasm, it's an acute miasm. Yeah. And that's the difference. An acute disease will either kill you or you'll get over it. Uh, Whereas a chronic disease, um, it will kill you, but it'll take a long time.
maybe decades and decades. Uh, and it's the same with this. If people got COVID and were not treated, they'd either get over it or they'd die, one or the other. And that's the nature of an acute illness. It's curious why it's affecting um, older people, though, you know, those over, I guess... Not eight, really. No. Because they're the ones with the huge level of comorbidity. I was going to say, yeah, cardiovascular diabetes, chronic respiratory diabetes and cancer, aren't they, really? Um, yeah, I mean, Australia has a dreadful record of chronic illness. At least two-thirds of every Australian has at least one chronic illness. Why do you think and, that is? Well, because of the health system. See, our health system is brilliant when it comes to emergency medicine. If you get knocked over yeah, by a is. bus, it is, you yeah. know, if you have a, a severe infection of some sort, like meningococcal disease, for example, probably the most severe possible, our emergency medical systems and our, the people who run them and, and operate them are amazing. They are. Where modern and medicine thank you, yeah. down. Thank you to all is, of them listening because they've done a wonderful yeah, job so far. They certainly have. But where modern medicine or pharmaceutical medicine, I should say, falls down is the treatment of chronic illness. And the problem in Australia and America and so many other developed countries is that not many people now die from, um, you know, acute illnesses. Say, for example, whooping cough in little infants, which often could be fatal, you know, mainly these days, uh, the little kitties can be saved. But chronic illness is just taken off and unfortunately this is something that completely suits the pharmaceutical drug cartels so they will maximize their level of income if three things happen firstly if the level of infant mortality falls and secondly if the level of chronic illness increases mm -hmm. and thirdly if they have the dominant role to play in the health system and those three things are what is, is happening in most developed countries around the world, including Australia. And so, yeah, COVID can be fatal um, for elderly people because the level of comorbidities is so extreme in this country. It's over 95% for uh, people 65 years and over who have at least one chronic illness. Um, I mean, that's, it's shocking. There were um, a lot of yeah, no a lot of um, vitamin D deficiency too that they're finding. Absolutely, which is and which is unusual because I mean we like Australia is known for um, direct sun exposure, you know, and that's the best source of vitamin D to be honest. Not not if you're locked in a nursing home. No, mm. you're no. not getting sun exposure. No, that's true. No, the, look, we could have saved hundreds of lives and a lot of suffering in the nursing homes throughout Australia if all of the residents had been given a decent supplement of vitamin D. And, I mean, Professor Brighthope was spot on yeah, with that. Yeah. Yeah, well, totally agree with him. Most definitely. So researchers did find that 2,000 IU of vitamin D per day abolish seasonal influenza. So it yeah. has been proven, yeah. And, oh, um, the, the level of data, the proof of this is just enormous. You know the trick that the pharmaceutical... Uh, lobby and, and their minions use. And this has been done in Australia by the NHMRC when they first did a report on homeopathy and then on 14 or 15 other uh, natural therapies. They basically say, well, you know, we've looked in our uh, PubMeds, we've looked in our journals, and this is the evidence we have. 
and there's really no evidence and it's a load of rubbish. Well, think of it this way. If I wanted to find out evidence about a drug, would I go to my local herbal journal? Would I go to my homeopathic journal to try and find that evidence for a particular drug? Of course not. And so they're doing that in reverse. They're saying, okay, we want to find out how effective homeopathy is for this or how effective herbal medicine is for this. So we'll just look in the pharmaceutical journals and if we don't find it there, it means it doesn't exist. I mean, it's so bloody ridiculous. Uh, Blind Freddy can see through it, but our politicians can't. Have you found any any evidence for the use of herbal medicines as adjuvants or um, um, symptomatic therapy in, in this case of COVID? I mean, curr- uh, currently they're still saying, you know, self-isolation, rest, NSAIDs in case you've got, um, you know, fever management. But there hasn't been really any public health measures to, you know, beyond that, apart from washing your hands and, you know, if something gets serious, you need to go to emergency. So I'm not an expert on herbal medicine and I can't really give you a, a, a complete answer to that, but I would have absolutely no doubt at all that in India, for example, the Ayurvedic practitioners who rely a lot on herbal medicine would have many answers and I've got no doubt that people who are experienced herbal practitioners would yeah, have. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we know even things like echinacea, uh, andrographis, yes, yeah. uh, mushroom complex, yeah, all of those yeah. sort of things. Yeah. Yeah. But they but would certainly be helpful. But it's individualised again because, I mean, it depends if you've got that hyperinflammation like the cytokine storm and, you know, versus the immune system that's um, compromised too. So you have to actually see what's going on for the individual. Yeah. Our treating is different to preventing. And mm. as the famous homeopath uh, Kent, Dr. Kent said, that prevention is much easier than treatment because when you're preventing a disease, you know what the common symptoms of the disease are and therefore you know what the remedies are likely to be uh, to deal with those symptoms. Whereas if you're treating, you've got to look at what's unusual and peculiar to the individual um, and work out your treatment symptoms based on that. And that takes more brain power, if you like, than working out prevention. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking, obviously, um, researchers are obviously looking into the immune system and how to best protect it at the moment, you know, in, in, in case we do become exposed to more serious pandemics as well. I mean, you know, we just have to look at, um, pay attention to how we're sleeping, if we're getting enough sleep or restorative sleep, you know, um, whether we'll be incre- at an increased risk for a hostile viral takeover. But... Um, regular exercise too, do you recommend that as well for increasing your resistance to illness? Oh, look, anything like that is going to be uh, helpful. And, of course, peace of mind. Emotional stress is very, very important um, in terms of one's immune functioning and your ability to deal with any uh, stressor on any level, physical, mental or emotional. So there's so many things we can do in general. I mean, the first things, in a way is that we should be teaching our children to avoid highly refined and highly processed food. Oh, most definitely. I mean, and I'm, you know, I'm one of those people who thinks a tax on sugar, for example, uh, would not be a bad thing because, unfortunately, um, it is behind an awful lot of chronic illness in this country. Most definitely, yeah. And um, a, a tax on refined, you know, bad fats in foods, um, 
it does so much damage. But we don't want to be fanatical and you don't want to end up like the, um, uh, you know, the people who say, no, you must not ever do anything like that. You must never eat this. You must never eat that. People have the right to also make mistakes. I mean, that's part of life is making a mistake and then then we either learn from it or we don't. And uh, if we keep repeating the mistake, well, we end up like a lot of people in um, in hospitals with chronic illnesses because the chronic illnesses come from repeating the same mistake over and over again. Yeah, they say it's sort of a, the product of the 20 years before, don't they? So what we Absolutely. do... Absolutely, yeah. But, but if your immune system is under attack, then, it, you know, it's no time to be eating sugar and artificial sweeteners and processed foods because we, we do know that um, it's particularly damaging to your immune system. So, you know, um, you do have to address nutrition, sleep, exercise, stress issues the moment that you feel that you're getting some type of flu or bug or cold, you know, really, that, that is a time to be yeah, um, well, quite... It's interesting that you mentioned the whole peace of mind thing too because I know recently I did a mental health first aid course and, you know, one of the things that they were talking about in that was actually turning the TV off and not listening to the news because, you know, despite the fact that we are in a pandemic and, you know, like you said, that peace of mind is really important to our health and our well-being, what we're being yep. fed is a lot of fear. You know, pick up the newspaper, turn on the TV... Every news channel is, is pushing a lot of fear, off. like it's it off, yeah. really about how many people are dying and, and all the lockdowns and, and riots and all that sort of stuff. And it does make people uneasy and that peace of mind does disappear. So it's interesting that even from a mental health perspective, they're saying detox, yeah. t- turn off your phones, turn off your, your news channels, don't, you know, don't put the news feeds on first thing in the morning. Um, and so, you know, some, it's interesting that something that sounds so simple, which is, you know, think happy thoughts um is so difficult to do but it makes such a difference if you do do it It makes a huge difference doesn't it yep no no i've uh, i used to be uh, slavishly listening to the news at certain times of the day and night and now i no longer (laughs) i miss it it's quite a relief actually um because uh it's it's very predictable put it that way (laughs) yeah it can yeah, and we get the same talking heads saying the same things. Well, no, no, they're not saying the same things. They're actually changing their message as uh, they find the message has to be changed. And, um, you know, that was uh, the interesting thing, uh, talking about, well, so many aspects of what's happening at the moment that the message gets changed subtly uh, to get, like, the third round of vaccines. You know, that's the new message now starting to be introduced. And so we'll have esteemed doctors and professors coming out very seriously talking about how much better it will be if you have your third dose of the vaccine. And, and next year we'll have them, the same people coming out saying how much better it will be if you have your fourth dose. Yeah. Um, you know, where does it end? We, we've really mishandled this whole outbreak around the world uh, very, very badly. And it could have been done so differently. So- and such a tragedy it wasn't. So what does the future look like? Yeah, well, um, if I knew that, I'd made a call of money on the stock exchange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you put look, the I'm, what I'm hoping weekend. for Australia is that uh, by the time Easter comes next year, we will have seen so much evidence from overseas about all aspects of this yeah. that even our mainstream media, which is in lockstep with the pharmaceutical drug cartels, 
they'll not be able to hide it from the average citizen because the the truth is being hid. I mean, people who go on alternative news uh, media, yeah, they they know things that other people don't know, but the the dangers of that is that some of that stuff is pretty crazy too. It's not all (laughs) factual. But as more factual evidence comes out, um, the, the, the politicians hopefully will start putting aside the directions they're getting from the health officers and the health bureaucracy in the country and will take common sense, practical decisions. They'll open up um, the, the use of alternatives, safe, proven, economical alternatives to prevent and treat COVID. Uh, we'll be able to manage. It'll be a flu like any other flu. You know, there have been years in the past where the if you like, inverted commas, the normal flu has killed thousands of people. Well, you know, that's life. Yeah. And most of the people it's killed have been elderly people with comorbidities, just the same as with COVID. Yeah, you've got to take and, influenza quite seriously, don't you? That It has left its mark previously. Oh, absolutely. Flu can be mm. uh, devastating. Yeah. Some, year, some flu seasons, there are thousands of deaths. But we didn't lock the whole country down. No, but... We, we didn't force people to get vaccines. We didn't deny people the right to a livelihood. You know, but for some reason, and I'm not going to speculate because I don't know the answer, and there's been a lot of speculation, mm-hmm. but for some reason this appears to have been coordinated around the world in the sense that most of the health bureaucracies around the developed world at least have taken the same path. Now, it was interesting. I was on a four-person panel. There was an international um, homeopathic forum uh, a few weeks ago that went for three days. And then uh, I was on a panel with a a, um, Russian doctor, an Indian doctor, and an Israeli doctor who lives in Tanzania. And he was saying, over there, uh, COVID's not a problem. If someone gets it, they treat them. Um, If someone... Um, has a problem, you know, they don't need to go to hospital most of the time because the treatment's effective. They don't wear masks, they don't have lockdowns, they don't have mandatory vaccination, etc. And I mentioned that on my most recent post um, on the Health Australia Party Facebook page, and a few people wrote in and said, yeah, the Prime Minister over there uh, supported the use of natural medicine, and then he mysteriously died. Mm. Now, I'm not making any allegations Mm. at all, but apparently... They now, the new lot, uh, are talking about vaccinating everyone and the rate has gone up. But prior to that, their incidents... And I had a look yeah. at the uh, the official data, Worldometer data for Tanzania, and they've got a fraction of the deaths per million, cases per million Australia. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, who knows what's going on. I certainly don't have all the knowledge in that area and... I'd rather not speculate. Um, all the, we can do is try and help. Sorry, when's yeah. the uh, term, uh, the phase three trials end? Because that gives us more significant uh, medium to long term data, doesn't it? At the moment, we don't have much data. Like we've only got very short term data. Well, most of the data we have is from things like the VAERS system in America and yeah. the uh, European system for recording deaths and permanent injuries and. Yeah and disabilities from uh, vaccines, and, and the data there is... Underreported. You know, it, yeah. Well, it, it's underreported, but it's still massive. I mean, you're talking about 25,000 
um, deaths in Europe, 24,000 deaths in uh, America. Now, not all of those are probably accurately reported, but then there would be other deaths that aren't reported at all. In Europe, you're talking well over a million um, adverse events, uh, and they're the things that are very underreported. Deaths are more accurate probably than um, just general uh, adverse events because most of them uh, are significantly underreported. But it's enough there to say these vaccines are not safe. And the fact that the vaccine manufacturers have no responsibility, no liability for any of the damage these things cause is a travesty. You know, that that would would make a huge difference if they and their uh, CEOs, etc., were held personally liable. It's interesting, isn't it? I know that if there's one issue with our herbal medicines, off the shelf it goes. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I read something, I forget the actual vaccine, but uh, someone was saying, look, some years ago there was a new vaccine introduced. They had something like 24 deaths, and it was removed on that basis in America. Mm. Yeah. And so in America now they've got 24,000 deaths and it's not removed. So, you know, the standards are different. Um, the people running the systems over there, that they definitely have ulterior motives. And, you know, the simplest one, of course, is money. Yeah. Um, that, and that's not a conspiracy theory. You just look at the billions of dollars that the executives of, the, uh, of Moderna and Pfizer have earned. Uh, you know, the, there was a... Something I saw, I think it was Forbes magazine in America uh, a few months ago, and they were looking at the new additions to the multi-billionaire list around the world. And I think they were looking at the top eight new additions, and six of the eight were executives of uh, pharmaceutical companies. Mm. You know, um, money talks, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, it's a telling sign, isn't it? It is. So, unfortunately, that hour has gone extremely quickly. I was like, we do need to wrap up and end the show. So, yep. thank you Which so, is most so much. Yeah. It's got so much yeah, to talk about. Anyway, it was a great pleasure talking to both of you, and I hope that was of some help and interest to your audience because there is light, I believe, at the end of the tunnel. There are things you can do, and that's the thing to remember that all is not lost, and that we just have to stick together, we have to support each other. Uh, we have to to know, let people know that they're not alone if they're feeling isolated and alone. So, and, Isaac, uh, where can people find you if they, they want to get in contact with you? Oh, don't say that. <laughs> I know, this I've week's been, been mad. I know, it's been mad. <laughs> yeah, I've been working literally to midnight, or uh, a few nights um, each week. And, uh, yeah, but look, no, I'm... Um, people can just Google me, I guess, and... Uh, um, but don't all rush in because you actually have a, a like a lot of knowledge. You're the author of eleven books, and so you have a lot of information out there already. So people can yeah. actually, if they go to my website, that's probably a good start. Yeah, um, you know that, and they can see about homeopathic immunisation in general. They won't find one word about COVID there, because if I put one word about COVID, no. I would be put out of business. Yeah, yeah. So my uh, website's just homestudy.net. H O M S-T-U-D-Y dot net. Think of homeopathic study. Yeah, lovely. Womstudy.net. And, and people can get some information there. Because there is a lot of very highly valuable research 
um, that has been, like you said, that was done through a mainstream university right here in Australia. So it's um, great yep. research. It's being tested. It's it's um, right up there with the best of the in the world. So thank you very much anyway, for sharing your time. Thank you so much. And I appreciate it very much. Thank Have you, Isaac. Time. Fantastic. Always having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that's uh, Dr. Isaac And you're listening to 87.6 FM, The Wellness Cast. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.